Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Julia Joja from the Middle East Institute and Alberto Hash from AI. On our podcast, we focus on the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why these matter to the United States. Joining us today is Joel Wasserman, uh, a former AEI researcher and uh, a friend to us all. Uh, Joel is in uh, Lviv, um, um, so he's very close to the front. We look forward to hearing uh, from Joel. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Dolly Bohr, why don't you lead the uh, Inquisition? Thank you, Giselle, and um, welcome, Joel. It's, it's great to have you, although we would have preferred to hold this conversation under happier, happier circumstances. Joel is a former AI intern. He worked with AI's director of Russia Studies, uh, Leon Aaron, uh, back in 2016, I believe. and 2015. 2015, and he... Uh, has since 2018 been working in Ukraine, teaching English uh, and in various freelance editing journalistic roles, uh, as, as, as became obvious from perusing your your LinkedIn <laughs> profile. Uh, and, and so I, I suppose you have developed a very tight and close connection to 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 Ukraine and 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 then to Kiev in the meantime uh you moved recently uh from Kiev to Lviv in anticipation of of what might be coming and 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 what really came to pass uh last week uh and i suppose the question i would like to ask you first is uh is is really to sort of reflect on 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 the situation uh, that you see around you in Lviv in, in Western Ukraine, which might be somewhat uh, removed from 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 the front lines, but certainly not from uh, from the sort of overall crisis that that that, that Ukraine finds finds itself uh, because of of the Russian invasion. So, you know, what 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 is the spirit of 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 the people around you? What what do they what are they you know telling you? Um, is is the security situation deteriorating already in in that western part of Ukraine? Uh, like any any news that you can share uh, would be would be greatly greatly appreciated. The mood is, of course, nervous, but calm, under control, defiant, and resilient. The uh, the people here are ready for a fight. They're ready to help their countrymen and countrywomen in a fight. Uh, walking around at least the downtown area of the city, you see a lot of the restaurants closed, a number of the stores closed, but uh, at, over the past few days, some of those have begun to reopen. Uh, the mood I've felt in the past two days here is something of settling in on a new normal. There is tremendous mobilization throughout this country uh, through volunteer networks on Telegram and other social networks, uh, people contributing food, contributing medicine, 
contributing uh, supplies of whatever sort they can. There have been a whole lot of people uh, preparing to go fight or preparing to defend their country, uh, preparing to be wherever they need to be to defend their country. What else can I say? I was at the train station about maybe an hour and a half ago. Uh, at that point, which is only a snapshot in time, the situation was, you know, of course, bustling. You could tell there's a humanitarian crisis going on, but certainly not out of control. I personally really enjoy cooking. And so while I was over there bringing supplies, um, I asked, okay, how can I help you with cooking? And they said, okay, we're okay for food. We don't, we don't need it right now, which, you know, is wonderful news. The line to the platform for the trains to Poland uh, was not oppressively long, but my understanding is that it is women and children only at this point, basically, unless, the, unless a man is the only, uh, is the only available caretaker. Um, I've heard problems with foreigners getting out, which kind of precludes my option to get out at this moment. Uh, but I wasn't intending to do so anyways. The grocery situation. Uh, a lot of stores are kind of, uh, have, are running low at the very least on like durable grains, pastas, buckwheat, rice, things like that. Uh, but I was actually able to buy a, uh, buy a good amount of pasta today. Um, so they're low on things you would consider crisis foods. Other things fa doing fairly fine. Uh, the mayor of Lviv uh, banned the sale of alcohol between 6 p.m. and 12 p.m. the next day on an ongoing basis. And my nearest grocery store just shut down all alcohol sales, which I can understand because last thing you need at this point is drunken drunkenness and disorderliness. As I said... Settling into something of a new normal, the situation is indeed liable, liable to get significantly worse because what we're getting now are still the, the people who fled fairly early. Um, whenever it is that corridors open up out of Kharkiv and Kiev, there are going to be so many more people. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Now, um, before we started this podcast, you told us um, a little bit about um, your girlfriend and uh, your family um, traveling to and from Kiev. I know you haven't been there in, in a while, but I know your girlfriend has been and her family. Can you tell us a little bit about what you heard from them and um, what your just personal perspective is on the situation in Kiev? I couldn't say for certain. Um, I've, you know, been in some contact with people, uh, with, with, with uh, friends and, and neighbors in Kiev. Um, I was told today the train, situa train station situation is quite chaotic and quite difficult. Um, it's cold right now here in uh here in Lviv and I assume it is that way in Kiev as well around the freezing point the people I know in Kiev are okay I mean they've they've obviously had to go to bomb shelters quite often I get notifications on my phone from the from the smart city app from Kiev and 
fairly frequently they say they give the air raid warnings uh in key via this app um i saw an image today that the russians bombed the tv tower uh Kiev's main tv tower and i happen to know that it is almost right next to a place called babinyar which many of your viewers or listeners will recognize as the place where the Nazis murdered all of Kiev's remaining Jews on September 29th and September 30th, 1941. Um, I don't know where exactly the bombs fell, but it's very likely that Russian bombs have fallen on places where Jewish martyrs took their last steps. Um, from just from tweets and posts, the food situation in Kyiv is under stress. Uh, the Russians are advancing. You guys have probably all heard the news reports of big Russian columns uh, on their way. Um, if I can tell the story of how my girlfriend got out, which I still don't know all the details of because she, uh, uh, well, you'll find out where she is. Uh, so the first, uh, the first, uh, she was out here with me in Lviv until about 1 a.m. Wednesday morning, uh, because she wanted to go, uh, go back to Kiev to convince her mom in person to try to get out. Um, I told her that night, uh, Wednesday night, I think this is, I think this is the night. I think this is when it happens. Um, and so she said, okay, I'll get out tomorrow morning. Uh, but the bombs started falling that night. I called her mom and told her, Kiev is under attack. Uh, rockets are falling. Uh, they hadn't woken them up, but <sighs> it was a very stressful situation because the first, because I, I of course, wanted them to get out as soon as possible. Her mom had made an arrangement with a friend who had a car uh, to have a spot in that car. Um, but then they found out that that friend wasn't planning to leave yet. So that's no option. That's no exit for, uh, for, for my girlfriend, Katya, and her mom. Katya decided she still wanted to get out. Her mom decided she was going to stay for the moment. And so my, my girlfriend, so Katya went to her friend uh, in, the, in their apartment at planned to go with them by their car to the city of Ivano-Frankivsk. Then they made the decision that they didn't want to, um, they weren't ready to head out that night. And it was a really tough moment. It was very stressful because this, this, I was terrified that the woman I love would be trapped uh, under Russian bombs and with Russian armor and, and um, mechanized units advancing towards, uh, advancing towards the city. Um, and it was so frustrating because I, I had been following this for quite a while and, uh, all the way back in 2015 and even earlier. Uh, so when I interned for AEI and even earlier, I've been building up knowledge and experience with this part of the, with this part of the world. And 
I had been trying to use that knowledge to, uh, to keep both of us safe and to keep her family safe. But for reasons that are hard to explain, Ukrainians really had the had a very difficult to handle mentality in a, uh, as, as this approached because they simply didn't want to think about the worst happening. Um, and then it did. Anyways, at that moment, I just felt so helpless because I'd tried, I'd tried to help before, but you know, there was, there was a balance that you, you had to strike between, um, being a, a good partner who, who protects the ones he loves and being a good partner who respects the decisions and the, the autonomy of the ones he loves. Um, long story short, fortunately, after not too many hours of panic or, or of, of dread, uh, Katya tells me that she's on a bus. She'd walked to a nearby metro station just trying to get some way out and there was a half-empty bus headed to the city or the town of Yaremce, which is a resort town somewhat close to the uh, Polish border in Ivano-Frankivsk Oblast. Uh, it's in the mountains. It's in the forests. It's quiet there. It's safe. And that was her first option out. That's the one she took. Uh, 25 hours later, she arrived at the hotel uh, that, uh, that uh, we'd booked for her. Um, that drive does not usually take 25 hours. Uh, it's, I mean, they have buses that, uh, it, it's a resort town. So they have, uh, you know, buses that connect to Kiev, um, you know, for people to take people to spend the weekend there. Um, it was long, it was difficult, but the people on the bus took care of each other. Uh, Katya got to safety. The next, uh, uh, what was it? I guess Friday, or is it? While Katya was still on her way, her mom, I was in contact with her mom, and her mom said, uh, could you look for tickets uh, on trains for us? Um, and so I and so I did. I went on the uh, Ukrainian Railways website. Uh, there were no tickets that day. But I got her. Uh, but I found a ticket for the next night uh, to Yoremcha. One ticket. Um, I got it. Uh, Katya's mom and their dog got on the train. Uh, that well, actually, a little bit uh, before that. Uh, so I urged her, please, Natalia Dmitrievna, leave early. I you can't predict what the traffic is going to be like. And one of the reasons for that is that on one of the main arteries of the city, uh, Prospect Peremochi, Victory Avenue, there had been a pitched battle against a Russian me mechanized column uh, mere miles from both my Kiev apartment and from the empty U.S. embassy, where uh, fortunately for Kiev and unfortunately for the Russians, uh, they basically got barbecued. But I was, you know, worried that okay, Prospect Peremoki is going to be crowded, uh, or going to be going to be closed. So that means Prospect Lesi Ukrainki, Lesi Ukrainki Avenue Street. Not sure, or was it Lesi Kurbasa? Anyways, 
the main the main artery that she, that her uh, her mom's apartment is on is going to be crowded. So I said, please, please leave hours early. Uh, fortunately, the traffic did not seem to be very bad. Uh, the train station situation at that moment was was under control, and they got on a train far earlier than the one I bought them uh, uh, tickets for. Um, they got on. They got to Yeremche. They're safe. And the, uh, having having managed that, it's a lot easier for me to for, for me to handle day to day and be at peace because uh, because because they're safe. They have a place to stay. They have warm beds. Uh, they have access to food. Um, they don't need to worry about Russian bombs right now. They don't need to worry about Russian tanks. They don't need to be worry about Russian soldiers shooting in the windows at people fighting the invader with their last uh, with their last measure. Joel, it's humbling to listen to these stories, um, and somewhat embarrassing to be a, a policy wonk in the middle of a, a human catastrophe like this. I just have one question to try to sort of connect the two. You know, the Ukrainians have so much to be proud of in the way that their armed forces have handled themselves and, of course, the way President Zelensky has held, handled himself. Um, however, it, it seems depressingly clear that, at least from this morning, your time, that the Russians are beginning to use incredibly brutal tactics, um, area weapons in the city, yeah. uh, reports of fuel air explosives, uh, being used in cities as well. You did. Uh, this is a speculative question, but how much do you think of Ukrainian resilience is a result of the successes that have, they've achieved thus far? And how can you imagine, uh, particularly if the depth of the Western abandonment? becomes plainer in coming days uh, or the, the uh, limited effect that sanctions and resupply efforts will really have in the immediate moment, uh, you know, depending on someone else's willingness to suffer uh, is, is not a great strategy. Well, I think I had mentioned before, there's a certain, there was a certain, you know, very frustrating unwillingness on the part of Ukrainians to really, you know, accept that the worst could happen, uh, could happen. On the other hand, you know, people knew that this was a possibility. I don't think they expected it would be this bad and this, it would unfold this rapidly. Um, but you also, you also have to remember, this is not the first time Ukraine has undertaken a rapid citizens mobilization for war. Uh, they did this back in 2014, 2015. Uh, they've mobilized to send people uh, to fight the invader. Uh, they've mobilized to help refugees. They've mobilized to, to hold the line. I think Ukrainians, you know, have always known that nobody else was going to come fight for them. I think that 
from what I've seen, they are, you know, actually quite grateful for uh, the weapons and the economic assistance uh, that the West has provided. Um, folks in civil society were outraged in the early points be, uh, when, uh, I guess, more limited, uh, uh, when the outline of expected response was rather limited, but that table has, that, that those tables have seemed to turn. Um, from what I've seen, and unfortunately, I just don't have the mental space to follow it as, as closely as you guys do. Uh, it does seem that the sang uh, Europe and the West and even our allies in Asia are really coalescing around some very serious sanctions against Russia that will very, that will make them feel very considerable pain for what they've done. Spirits are high. And I think that Ukrainians are very encouraged by their early successes. Um, the, uh, how much prof how much Russian profanity am I allowed to use on this podcast? <laughs> as much as you'd like. You know the the legend of you know the uh, of the soldiers on Snake Island, who said, uh, I think that's the one phrase of Russian that's now widely known in the West. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And there's also uh, uh, a couple days ago, I was walking around uh, downtown Lviv. And there was, uh, there's, you know, they had written on a, a on a poster in a coffee shop. Um, basically, <laughs> we're staying Putin Huilo, which translates roughly as Putin is a fuckhead. Uh, we're staying with our people and our good company and having good coffee. Uh, hang in there. We'll fight this together. Was basically the message. Um. Ukrainians really have been quite, have been very uh, well encouraged by their early successes. Um, the Ukrainian armed forces has, has uh, fought very admirably. Uh, the Russian forces have, have uh, been demonstrating what is for them catastrophic incompetence. Um, these soldiers didn't know they were going to invade a country. <laughs> And they, I mean, you, you have seen, you know, uh, so many reports that it can't all be, uh, it can't, it can't all be falsified of Russian soldiers basically just abandoning perfectly functional and fueled equipment because they don't want to fight. Um, at the end of the day, no, Ukraine does not have the capacity to resist the horrible weapons that Russia is appears now willing to bring to bear. Um, but every Russian soldier that they capture, kill, or for, force into desertion, every Russian tank or armored vehicle, every Russian uh, that they capture, every uh, helicopter or other aircraft that is shot down, uh, every... All of those improve their negotiating position uh, because I guess, God willing, there's going to be some sort of waking up in Russia realizing, wait, you mean this isn't just a, a protection of Donbass? We're bombing Kharkiv? 
my son's been captured outside of Kiev. Uh, wait, why are all, why has my, uh, my, my credit card stopped working on the Moscow Metro? One hopes that at a certain point, Russians are going to be forced to ask themselves these questions. And a, uh, the press conference, I guess, which, uh, uh, Belarus's self-proclaimed president, Alexander Lukashenko, gave where he literally showed a map of their invasion plans. So, you know, hard to deny that's what's going on. At a certain point, yes, the, negotiate, the Ukrainian negotiating position depends on the response of the Russian people. It, it, it depends on uh, the sanctions front holding it feels unlikely to me that Ukraine will be able to hold Kyiv. It seems likely to me that Russia will force some sort of partition. The contours of that partition are yet to be decided. Um, the way that Ukrainians are fighting now, there will remain a free Ukraine. The way that the Russians are fighting now, there will remain a free Ukraine. How that develops, I mean, you guys have better access to far more qualified military experts than me. Before we have to wrap up, um, because we, we do speak to an American audience, and you are an American in, in uh, Beef, um, I guess we have to ask the question from your personal perspective, putting aside how grateful Ukrainians are for the very limited help that we have provided and highlighting the worst case scenarios that we don't, we don't need to to discuss one more time. Everybody knows what we're referring to. How do you feel about Western support or lack thereof? And what do you think that the West, United States, Europe should be doing more to um, to help given these scenarios? So in other words... Kiev under siege, we are questioning if there's even going to be a Ukraine and, and what that will look like. What is the West's responsibility towards that um, in, in your view? You know, there are people floating around with the idea of a no-fly zone. I regretfully but certainly understand why that is probably not feasible because to declare a no-fly zone is to declare that you will shoot down Russian aircraft, which is to declare at least some sort of war on Russia. Who knows? Uh, and I'm not totally certain whether the United States or the, or the West or NATO have the air assets to sustain a, uh, a, a, to sustain an ongoing air combat operation against the Russian air force. Um, the sanctions, as far as I know, you know, they have been quite significant and uh, hearteningly so. Uh, the uh, response from governments, assuming that, you know, assuming, well, I read, uh, I read a tweet that, you know, in the early days, they were trying to get carve-outs from sanctions, like Belgium was insisting on diamond exports as a carve-out. Italy was ins insisting on luxury goods as a carve-out. My impression is that that consensus has changed. And to the extent that it, is, that it has changed, um, I think that is a very good thing. 
the punitive or armed response uh, is something that wa policymakers in Washington, in Brussels, and in other uh, world capitals and leadership centers will have to discuss. What I think should not be controversial is a massive mobilization of humanitarian aid uh, to help the Ukrainians who are fleeing, to help the Ukrainians who are still trapped. Uh, we need to be mounting far more confident, competent efforts than as the United States. We need to be aiding far more competent efforts um, in assisting refugees and people fleeing the violence than we have done in our recent history with other crises. Um, we, we need to get food there. We need to get medicine. Uh, we need to let these people uh, come to safety. As I said, the way that the United States has acquitted itself with refugee crises in its recent history uh, has not been glorious. Uh, we have a chance to make some amends with this. Ukraine is a country full of, you know, passionate, intelligent, uh, highly educated people. They want to build good lives for themselves and live in peace and dignity. Um, we can help them with this. As I said, I was, I, as I think I said, I was at the train station earlier and, um, the effort that they're holding down there is, you know, it's highly competent. Uh, they've done this before. They 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 know how to do this. Um, but we need to give them the supplies, uh, the food, medicine, fuel, money to do this, the weapons to do this. Um, and we really need to get that. Uh, we need really need to get on that fast because. Uh, the situation in Lviv right now is fine. When humanitarian corridors open up from places like Kherson, Kharkiv, Kiev, other cities that are under attack and siege, um, people are going to become are going to come pouring in here, and it's going to be very difficult. We need to help them. Joel, um, we can't thank you enough. Uh not only for your time, but for giving us a personal and very poignant insight to what day-to-day -day reality is uh, for uh, the people of Ukraine. Uh, and I have to say, uh, for what passes for a tiny ray of sunshine uh, in our podcasts uh, uh, about the Eastern Front over the last weeks. Uh, so we're all grateful for that and take some inspiration uh, from it. It's very difficult uh, to keep one's emotions separate from one's analytical brain uh, at this moment. So, yeah, I'm especially for you, I'm sure. So, uh, for me, Giselle Donnelly, and for both Yulia and Dalipur, <laughs> uh, you would think that by uh, several dozen episodes in, we'd have straightened this out, but, uh, you know, we're still scrambling to keep up with things. At any rate, thank you, Joel. Thank you uh, to my uh, colleagues. And thank you to the listeners for joining us on the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to security challenges that have arisen 
uh, and that are confronting us along a line from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter. We do listen to uh, what our audience has to say and use the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. That's all one unfortunate word uh, as a hashtag. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Until next time, goodbye.